You're listening to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and best moments in life, a place where we get a chance to hear from people who are creating a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. This is a place for connection, to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Making Our Way. Today, we have such a powerful episode. We're talking about making your way through a diagnosis, a devastation, a struggle, something difficult in life that you didn't plan for. And we're talking about it with my friend, Lauren Fritz. Lauren is a Duchenne mom like I am, but she is so much more. She is a longtime trauma and grief counselor. She worked for years with families in crisis, dealing with loss and catastrophic medical issues and the intense heartache of wanting to help your child or your loved one. But so much changed for her when both of her sons were diagnosed with Duchenne. If you're in this Duchenne community, you know what that means. If you're new to Duchenne or you're just listening in and starting to learn about our story, the very short version is that Duchenne is a brutal, progressive muscle-wasting disease for which there is no cure. So Lauren, when her sons were diagnosed, she had always been the helper, but now she became the mom, the family that needed help. She has an amazing perspective on living in, as she calls it, the in-between, that place in life that holds both joy and despair. She gives us some really beautiful, very personal reflections on letting go of expectations, being present in what does that mean, and moving from being overwhelmed and devastated to feeling joy and peace again. She is wise and kind and gentle. And through sharing this really intimate look into her own life, both the good and the difficult, she gives us so much comfort. And I think she gives us hope for our own journeys. I hope this is an episode that you want to share with your friends and your family. And I hope you want to download and listen to it over and over again. I am so grateful that we have Lauren's voice and wisdom. Hi, Lauren. It's so great to have you here today. Glad you're with us. Hi, Marisa. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I am so glad to have you because I get to spend time with you on here. And our connection started with me being a little bit of a fan of yours without you even knowing it. And and what I mean by that is I, I caught some things you had posted might have been in a Duchenne group that we're both in on Facebook. And I just thought you had a beautiful way of talking about life and sharing experiences. When we started this podcast, I thought, oh, I bet Lauren has some some great things to say. I'd love to hear some insights from her. I'd love to share her with more people. But what I found out really fascinated me because when I started into this world of rare disease, and really it could be any struggle somebody has, I didn't have a 
roadmap. And I remember thinking when Joseph was diagnosed, one of my first thoughts within a couple of days was, oh my gosh, I am going to need a therapist. I'm going to need a counselor to get myself through this. I didn't know what to do with trauma and tragedy and the fear of a diagnosis like this. But Lauren, your story strikes me because you started this journey. When you started this, you already, you were a therapist. And I am so curious about that dual role in your life about navigating something when your job has been to help other people navigate. So I just kind of want you to share with us a little bit about your professional life and how that sort of led into handling your own pretty heavy diagnosis that you're carrying. Sure. So when I was starting out my career, I always thought that it would be really intriguing to have a career as a therapist and specifically to have a career in grief and loss and trauma. It just sounded really interesting. Before I had children, I went to school and went to grad school and went into the field of working with loss and worked at a hospice and worked with pediatric patients who had terminal illness and worked with some really heavy stuff for a while and worked with families and worked with children who had chronic or terminal illnesses. And then I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to take a break. And I think I'm going to shift gears and I'm going to start my own family and, you know, maybe take a break from all this heaviness. Mm. So I had my own children. We knew we wanted to have two kids and had two healthy boys. Began working, you know, just some different aspects of therapy. There are a lot of directions you can go. And when my boys were, you know, young, I was working inpatient at a psychiatric hospital, which is still intense work, but just a different aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And then also working at a private practice, that was when I learned that they had Duchenne. And I remember just the irony of that. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I've been on the treating side of this team for so long. Mm -hmm. And here I am, I'm the mom, I'm the family. And how ironic and bizarre that is. But here we are. Yeah, like in a cruel twist of fate, everything you've been doing and devoting yourself to with other people was maybe in some way preparing you for what you were going to have to navigate yourself, which seems unfair and just ironic. But how did that hit you? I mean, literally within what, a, a couple of days or within the time for needing a diagnosis to getting a diagnosis, your role switched 180 degrees. Yeah, I remember we found out when my older son, Jake, was five. And then roughly a month or two after that, we found out my younger son, Ryan, who was one and a half at the time. Mm -hmm. And I remember just, you know, a a really kind of cruel, ironic, sick punch in the gut at the time thinking, are you serious? And also, I remember talking to a boss of mine shortly after that and being terrified and thinking how I I didn't believe I'd even be able to continue working. I was so terrified that at that moment, I thought, how would I have any credibility to shoulder something so huge? And I remember a boss of mine saying at the time, you know, I can see at some point people coming to you for this reason. And I Mm -hmm. couldn't imagine it because it was so new to me and I was so devastated. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking at that time, how would anybody want to come to me? I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know what to do with this. Mm-hmm. that I remember looking at her and thinking, this doesn't compute. I don't know what to do with it. That was 12 years ago. If you kind of transport yourself back there, if you kind of 
think and maybe close your eyes and think about, okay, where was I? What did it feel like? What was I experiencing? I think I was overwhelmed. I think my dreams were being crushed. Mm -hmm. I think I couldn't imagine a life that had joy in it. Mm -hmm. I think I was, I was having a lot of trouble imagining how life would proceed. And I think that's how most newly diagnosed families feel. I think it's a great point. And I call it the great equalizer because I think, you know what? We all get 24 hours in a day. Nobody gets more. Nobody gets less. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, what your socioeconomic background is. We all get 24 hours in a day. And it just, it's up to us how we use them and what we do with them. And it, it levels the playing field. And I, I think that for catastrophic, horrible diagnoses, for, for any kind of tragedy that somebody goes through, Lauren, for you to acknowledge that your years and years of training, working with families, your expertise in this, it didn't put you ahead in the starting line when it became very personal. No, we were not exempt. Mm -hmm. We were not. I was not exempt. I learned that again and again in my work that I don't mm -hmm. get shortcuts for my own personal grief or my mm -hmm. own personal trauma. And I, I think sometimes it makes me more credible when I'm doing my work and I get that there's no glory in this. Mm -hmm. This is real. And this is a real walk that I walk with my clients and my patients. I walk it every day. You know, mm -hmm. we are a Duchenne family that lives this every day. Right. So I, I don't think I'm in the active stages of disbelief, but mm -hmm. we are a family that lives actively with Duchenne and its progression. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more involved in our life now that is joyful. I think you bring up a really good point when you, you say there aren't any shortcuts. The joy and the happiness doesn't just show up on my doorstep every morning. You know, sometimes it's a decision and sometimes it's not even there. We have to figure it out. Do we ever celebrate what it takes to claw your way out of deep, dark spaces sometimes? And that there aren't any shortcuts for people. And I experience it because of Team Joseph, my nonprofit, and I will have people inevitably say, oh my gosh, Joseph's amazing. You're so positive. You guys are so happy. And I'm like, yes, we are. But that's not everything. It doesn't mean I don't need help. And it doesn't mean that I don't have my moments. And it doesn't mean we don't work on it. Yeah. And I think you're right that sometimes social media is is kind of the nemesis of that, right? What we mm -hmm. see oftentimes posted or somebody's final product is the conclusion. Yes. And we're good sometimes at, at showing the shiny end product. Yeah. And I think sometimes that can be a danger for any of us in the rare disease world or in mm -hmm you know, specifically in the Duchenne world, that we need to know that most of this is the in-between, right? Her, most yes. of this is is the struggle. And the struggle often looks like a whole mix of little elements of joy and little elements of despair, <laughs> oftentimes mm -hmm. in the same day. That's right. So you you talk about joy and dreams, and and I think it's so important because for those of people who are listening and don't really have a full grasp of Duchenne. I mean, uh, the short version is it's progressive, it's degenerative. My own Joseph lost the ability to walk when he was 12. He's been in a power chair for years. He's 
you know, starting to lose the use of his arms. There's daily struggle. We monitor his heart and his pulmonary function regularly. There's there's real heavy knowledge that we carry with us all the time. But for me, it's been a wake-up call to really live in the moment. And Lauren, you talk about that, about really how, what do you get to choose now and how there are so many things we can't do, but so many things we can do and we get to we get to decide. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I started to think about early on is that we don't fit real well in the mold if there's a mold about what's going to traditionally bring us joy or help us follow the rules to bring joy in our lives. You know, when you have able-bodied children and you do things like sign up for Little League or gymnastics Mm -hmm. or go to places where they do things like pool parties or roller skating or, you know, all the all the things you imagine doing as a family, they, they just don't work well when you have children with accessibility issues and bodies with muscle wasting disease. Mm-hmm. And you learn pretty quickly, I learned pretty quickly that we were going to fail miserably if we kept trying to meet those standards. We were failing miserably. So I decided screw the standards, mm-hmm. you know, screw the standards. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't like failing miserably all the time. Mm-hmm. And it just made more sense to start creating different standards, different definitions of happiness and of beauty. And it meant we weren't going to keep up with the friends that had to do that. And it meant we were going to start finding different kinds of people in our mm-hmm. lives and different kinds of activity. And there's loneliness at first in trying to do that. But then things do open up and do change. And I think when when there's a willingness to start building community that way, and when there's a willingness to be somebody who advocates that way, other people are also drawn to that. You I know? agree. I think that so you give other people permission, say, screw the standards, I'm gonna I'm gonna make my own path. We're gonna do this our way. What does that look like for you when you talk about redefining happiness and joy? What is that for you guys? What does it look like? Mm-hmm, yeah. The nuts and bolts of it. In my house, it looks like we like animals in my house. In my house, we have a service dog who has failed being a service dog and is just a really good companion. And we have two <laughs> cats and we have a lizard. And they're very expressive parts of our family. So in my house, when my husband comes home, You'll hear him talking in his animal voice to all the animals. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of dancing in our house, usually Mm -hmm. by me, like torturing my children. One of the practices that I like as as a person is to wake up in the morning, go outside with my coffee, walk in the grass in my bare feet, and Mm -hmm. to take pictures up close of things I would normally miss with my camera, just on my cell phone, just Mm -hmm. as a practice of quiet meditation. Mm-hmm. We take walks around the neighborhood sometimes, and with a walk, that's a walk with a scooter or a power chair. Sure. You know, whatever form you do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of music. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's just snuggling and togetherness. One of my greatest joys is that my 14-year-old or my 17-year-old will still hold my hand, which, yeah. you know, when you think about breaking rules. I think conventionally, that's not something that happens a lot with teenagers. Sure. 
Sure. You know, Lauren, you say when you take photos and you take some incredibly beautiful photos and you've got a, you've got a great eye, you just said you take pictures of things you might miss otherwise. And I've thought about that myself. You know, it was when Joseph was still walking and he was barely walking and he was going so slow. And we have such a tendency in our culture to be frantically racing from one thing to the next. Everything's about cramming the schedule, packing it in, overbooking, and just go, go, go. And I'll never forget one time that I was on a field trip with Joseph and it was uh it was at the zoo which is just a nightmare when you have a child who's on the verge of losing ambulation and there was so much walking and you know kids are running right we're running from the giraffes to the panda bears and they want to get in as much as they can and he was moving slowly and i could see i could see the awareness on his face of you know he couldn't keep up and i just told him i said buddy you know what is so cool the slower you go the more you see. And when you're racing, you're not seeing everything you could see if you just slow down. And I remember saying that out loud to him and thinking, I just said this to my little boy, but I think I was the one maybe who needed to hear it. I think when we pay attention, just internally on our own, you know, the quiet moments, it's like, I'm learning so much from this journey with my son. Yeah, yeah. I am really struck too. Growing up, my sixth grade boyfriend, who became a very prominent person in my town, he was the school board president, he worked in a bank, he died. Mm. And I'm constantly struck by people that you know of as otherwise healthy that sort of drop dead at your left Mm -hmm. and your right. We have this different scenario where we're aware that our children have, you know, very likely shortened lifespans, but we are aware that we can use this time differently, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and we do everything we can to advocate. Both of my children have been in trials. I advocate. I want cures. In clinical trials, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's no shortage of energy put in that direction, but the time that we have we are more aware of it. Mm-hmm. We tend to be more conscious of how we use it. And I think about yeah. that boyfriend who I I don't think he knew his time was going to be mm-hmm. cut short. You know, yeah. and, and I think about that a lot. And I think when I'm tired, <laughs> you know, and when I don't want to get up and one of my sons is calling me for something else. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know what? Be conscious. Be conscious about this time. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, we all have, we all have an expiration date, right? I mean, everybody has a time, we just don't know when it is. And I think we don't like to think about it. So we don't. But you and I and people in our situation, we're kind of forced to and I think it can either destroy you, or it can, can really bring you to life, you know, and for everyone, I'm like, is our story going to be about dying? Or is our story going to be about living? And I think that is um, applicable to every single person. What What's our story going to be about? Right, um, right. So Lauren, how did you start sort of evolving from your initial shock and grief and sort of that, you know, <laughs> accepting the irony of the caretaker is needs caretaking or the, you know, you were the helper and now you are the family that you used to help you. You're in a different role. How did you start um, kind of wrapping your head around that and, designing this life that, you know, that you find great joy in. 
You know, I don't know that I was the brilliant one. I think my kids, they didn't necessarily say, uh, we've been stamped with Duchenne and we're going to walk around being this diagnosis. They were sort of like, hello, we're human beings and we're still interested in the things we're interested in. Yeah. And we still intend on living life. So lady, you better get with it. <laughs> you know? Get with the program, mom. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I'm either going to walk around this traumatized nutcase or I'm going to figure this out. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was a lot of heaviness in my head as I was sorting through clinical trials and accommodations to our house and how are we going to afford this and, you know, all these things that parents do and they're overwhelmed. But I saw my kids living. Yeah, they were living. Exactly. I remember I never forget the first time that I told Joseph, thinking I was being very wise and very nurturing and helpful to him, and he wanted to try something. And I said, well, you know, buddy, your disease doesn't define you. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, I know that. <laughs> I thought, you know, I I think our our inclination as parents, of course, is to we're teachers to our children. And it's like, we're I have to teach my child everything I know. And what I've come to understand is if I listen more than I talk, and I watch him more than I do, and, and I slow down and pay attention, he will teach me more than I could ever dream of teaching him. There's so much beauty in that. So much beauty. I think, too, along the way, we've known of this disease in my family now for 12 years. And I have accompanied my children through significant physical loss. Mm-hmm. My older son uses a power chair and needs help with all of his activities of daily living now. And what I've learned is that what they need from me is not a cure, Mm -hmm. because I don't have a cure in my back pocket. Mm -hmm. What they need from me is the willingness to be present with them to the loss. Mm. When my son says to me, Mom, He had spinal fusion surgery this summer and there have been some complications and there has been ongoing physical pain. And when he says to me, I feel like my my body is ruined, he needs for me not to take that away and Mm -hmm. to say, yeah, I get it. Mm -hmm. Your body's not working like it was before right now and this has been a long journey. That's so powerful. I'm covered in goosebumps. And so, Lauren, is that really... um don't try to fix it always, right? Is that kind of what you're you're saying is we don't have to fix it. We have to just acknowledge it and be there with them. Yeah. When my kids have been in, in clinical trials that involve years of travel and giving things up and being poked and prodded. And when they say, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Me either. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Or, you know, this just sucks. And sometimes I'll be like, yes, it sucks. It does. <laughs> yes, just agreeing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't have to make it all sound okay. Yeah, that is so liberating. I mean, just to hear you say that, and I've probably said it to myself, I might have read some things on it, but just to hear you say that, we, yeah, we don't have to fix it. We just need to be in it. So you and I have both been in this journey for a long time. We're old timers. And uh, <laughs> I sometimes think about when I'll hear from a family that's newly diagnosed. And and I, I mean, I've been through this personally. With I remember when my dad had Parkinson's and I was, you know, a new new person in that. 
that disease space. And my mom was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer when she was 80. And I remember just thinking, okay, somebody cut my learning curve. Tell me what to do. I got to get up to speed quickly. Do you remember, or have you ever thought about what you wish you knew early on? Yeah, I do remember. I remember reaching out when my boys were first diagnosed. What I needed more than anything was to tell somebody to tell me that we were going to survive this. Mm -hmm. We had some friends that, well, now that are friends, somebody I reached out to in our community, another family that had two boys like us that were diagnosed. And I remember reaching out to the father and just, they, they had been diagnosed a year longer than we were. And he wrote me back and he said, it feels like a cannonball being shot through your middle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And something, I, I don't remember anything about the letter other than that, but you know, somebody saying, kind of like this is unimaginable pain and and you're still going to be standing you're going to survive mm -hmm. it that was what i needed to hear you know all the logistics about the treatments and the doctors and and all of that stuff comes and goes and changes over time but somebody saying you're going to be okay you're going to still be standing mm -hmm. and we're doing it and other people are doing it is what i needed to hear and really the other thing I needed to hear, because I couldn't imagine it at the time, is that your life is going to have joy in it again. Because mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine that. And our life yeah, has a lot of joy in it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's not, it's not necessarily because everything gets fixed. You know, right. there recently I did this reading at church. It's a reading by Ross Gay. It's from the Book of Delights. And I really, I'm drawn toward things that are kind of a mix of hardship and um, positivity. This man challenged himself to create an essay about something joyful every day. And I read one of his essays in church. And I actually, I got in trouble for reading this essay because there's a curse word in the essay. Um, <laughs> and, and in this essay, it's called Heart to Heart and it's beautiful. I encourage people to find it and look it up. But in the essay is also the word clusterfuck and somebody in my church got offended that I said that during church. But I thought you about rebel. this later. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and most of us, I believe in the Duchenne world, become rebels because we sort of learn you can't always do things by the book. But I thought about mm -hmm. this later, and I thought there is so much grace in our lives, and it kind of is a clusterfuck. You know, it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's such a mix of the positivity and the profane, all mixed in one. And we don't get to escape either. You know, we just don't. We learn how to live it with grace, hopefully. I think, yeah. And Lauren, I think grace is the epitome of instead of trying to run away, turn, turn around and embrace it, right? It's like a dog, uh, you know mad dog chasing you. Don't run. Turn around and stare it down and say, you know, bring it on. Bring it on. Right. Yeah. Right. And see who you might be meant to become if you do that. Mm -hmm. And who your kids might be meant to become, because I think we're pretty incredible people. I agree with you. So speaking of being incredible, you talked about you couldn't imagine getting through this at the beginning and your dreams had been dashed. What do you look forward to now? What are your dreams? Mm. Well, as far as my work, I often work with people that have serious illness or have been through trauma or things that they can't imagine how to deal with in the beginning. So that's exciting to me because my journey has been learning to deal with something I couldn't imagine in the beginning. 
My dreams for my family and my life are finding a route that feels cool and realistic. And I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. We're learning that. And sometimes what I envision ends up changing right in front of me. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it changes because of my boy's health. Sometimes our expectations change, but sort of trying to fulfill what we can do, what we want to do, what's realistic for our hearts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. putting what, all those things together. What makes Jake and Ryan happy? Not even their dreams, but like on a day-to-day basis, what's a good day? A good day is time with family when family's not too grumpy, <laughs> <laughs> time with their pets, a little time usually online with their friends. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty simple. I think maybe time where there's a little bit of learning, where there's some laughter. You know, it's it's really not as hard as we think. I think that is so impactful. You have a very similar wish that I did when Joseph was first diagnosed as I thought, I just want somebody to tell me it's going to be okay. And I remember early on when you and I were talking, you said it's just a matter of trusting that this really is a can be a beautiful journey, but everybody, you just need to calm down. And I, that cracked me up because I thought, yeah, it's just, just calm down. Just, you know, sit with it and, and let it soak in and know that you, you are going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, I've been the parent that thought, oh gosh, we need a service dog or we need to get to Disney or we need, you know, we need the Mm -hmm. clinical trial. I've been through all those phases. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been that parent that thought these were all the answers. So this is post that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is more my conclusion at this point. So Lauren, you've adapted and lived so beautifully. As we're wrapping up here, what's your message to the world when the unexpected happens, when the rug gets pulled up from under you, when you can't catch your breath, when you're not sure that everything's going to be okay? What would you say your message is to people? I think whether we go through something like Duchenne or or something else, there are plenty of ways that there is hardship in life. And I mm-hmm. think very few of us go through life and escape any of it. I think there's this sense of grounding that all of us have if we slow down and we're quiet enough and we're calm enough to find it. Mm -hmm. And if we let ourselves do that, I think we'll be in touch with something that says, I want to live fully, Mm -hmm. you know, whether I'm going to live for 15 years or whether I'm going to live for 95 years. And that can be a guide for us. And then whether we live in a power chair or whether we run marathons, that can be the way that we interact and that can be the way that we love and that can be the way that guides us through our work relationships and our family relationships Mm -hmm. and the way that we put energy into this world, you know, and and I think to me that's really important and that can (laughs) first calm us way down and second really help us as we're navigating things like a disease process or family relationships or just coping with what's unknown or maybe what's beyond our power. Mm -hmm. So to me, that makes really good sense to say, you know what, when we're looking at something like this, that can help define what's going to be beautiful for us. And those, to me, sound like really good new rules to go by. 
I agree. I agree. Well, Lauren, you are amazing. I'm so grateful that you're alongside me and a whole bunch of people in this journey. I wish you didn't have to deal with it, but I'm glad that we're in it together. And you are absolutely a gift and a great guide. And I'm so glad that you're able to spend time with us. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.